and welcome to The Price of Football, the pod that looks at the money behind the beautiful game, a game that became even more beautiful about 9.45 last night. I'm Kevin Day and I'm getting ready for a European tour and over there in Sussex is expert in football finance, Kira Maguire, looking unnecessarily smug after Brighton assaulted Arsenal for three points. How are you, Kieran? Well, I'm, I'm OK um, oh. you know, to, uh, to support a club that engages in such thuggeries, slightly embarrassing. <laughs> And uh, you know, I'll be sending a wreath of flowers to Arsenal. <laughs> Would have been a red card if it was rugby. That's all I'm saying. It's not rugby. Oh, fair point. You know, well, that's why you're the expert in football finance, and I'm merely the 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 organ grinder's monkey who asks the questions. Um, it's it's Monday. It's not. It's Sunday afternoon actually, but we have to record. Uh, but it's Monday, Kieran. So it's it's questions day. But there's a couple of big stories that we need to get through. Uh, one of which, as ever, you predicted. It's amazing, isn't it? How uh, you make one slight error about a team name and we get hundreds of tweets to complain. You you predict a huge story and no one says a word. But you, you said this would happen. UEFA have temporarily relaxed financial fair play rules because of COVID. How long will temporary mean, do you think? And will the big clubs take advantage? Well, um, what UEFA have said is that instead of being assessed for 2019-20, they're effectively going to to add the next two seasons together. So 1920 and 2021 will be treated as if it was a single season. Um, and they've also said that because of coronavirus, um, clubs can add on the, the extra broadcast money, prize money, gate receipts, sponsorship money that they, they would have received had had the seasons not been disrupted. Um, how long is it going to go on for? It, to a certain extent, it's, it's, it, it's a great unknown because we don't know when uh, mass gathering events will be, will, will be sanctioned by individual countries and individual governments. Um, and in, from UEFA's point of view, they're, they're quite nervous if you think about it because they're, they're representative of 55, 56 different countries across Europe, some of which might be returning and others not. And that could have huge implications for um, Champions League and Europa League. And, and is, there, is there a chance that big clubs will take advantage of this, that they, they will maybe spend more on transfers than they would have done? Or we, will UEFA be making sure that people don't use this as a loophole to get out of things. Well, well, UEFA have said that they are going to be checking the numbers with a great deal of scrutiny to prevent this. Um, the, the one thing you're not allowed to adjust your numbers for is player sales. And, and I think that could have an impact upon those clubs who, who you might refer to as development clubs, you know, the, the clubs that will are good at spotting the players for, you know, in, in the five to 10 million pound bracket and then selling them on within a year or two for for a multiple of that because as, as we've said on a few occasions um the transfer market except for the very elite is is likely to collapse so um I, it's not necessarily a, a completely equitable ta- a, a stance taken by uefa but it, it's difficult to know what else they could have done right uh now, Timo Werner is going to Chelsea. Now, normally, as a straightforward transfer story, it wouldn't bother us because we're football finance. But it's going to cost Chelsea £100 million, Kieran. £100 million. Yeah, and, and I think this is, is this is intriguing in the sense of when, when clubs do sign a player, they say, well, how much is the total cost to us um, in respect of the, of, of the guy arriving? So it, it, if, we, if we take a look at Werner... He wanted to come to the Premier League because that's where the money at. So, so his agent's getting twelve million pounds 
um, from wow. this, which uh, which is quite good. The release clause on the contract is fifty two million, and I think release clauses are an interesting one. We're, we're hoping to get a, a football lawyer on the show uh, this week, so they might be able to explain that um, in, a little bit cl- clearer than, than, than my knowledge. Um, his wages are going to double. His wages are going from around about four million a year to nine million a year. So you put all of those together, um, and that gives a total cost of, of about one hundred and nine million pounds over the five years. And, and that's before I suspect that you you start to factor in the bonuses. So it, it is it is costly. Um, and that's why so many clubs are looking at the prospects of Bosmans. If, if you think. Um, you know, about the likes of Ibrahimovic and Aaron Ramsey. They, they've they earned huge sums of wages, probably more than the likes of Timo Werner. And the reason why they can afford to do that is that the, the transfer fees not being paid and therefore that's actually being replaced by higher wages. Yeah, only an accountant would say £12 million was quite good. That's quite good, £12 million quid. And also, uh, I'm intrigued by the news that we're getting a lawyer on Uh it's nice that I find these things out from you, Kieran, rather than some kind of formal message from the producer. But I'm just amazed that we found a lawyer who obviously hasn't listened to the podcast because you've spent nine months pretty much insulting them on every pod we've done. So I'm, I'm pleased that we found one who's big enough to come on and, and take that on the chin. No, they are. They they, they 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 listen to the show. We we get I get a lot of comments from from lawyers, and I've and I myself appeared on Law in Sport. Um, a few weeks ago, that they, they they don't mind it. Yeah, you know, they they quite happy take take the take take the stick and and then just invoice for it. Yes, I, I uh, it's a measure of my relationship with you, Kieran. That when you said I've appeared, I automatically assumed the second part of that sentence was going to be in court quite often. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm pleased to hear it wasn't. Now I'm, Newcastle... I'm, the, I'm the black sheet of the family on that one. <laughs> Well, that amazes me because what I hear, yeah, I see what I hear. I see what you mean. You're because you haven't appeared in court. I see it was a reverse. I got yes because your family are all uh, associates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, now Newcastle have announced unequivocally, uh, finally, that they will refund season ticket holders. Kieran, yes, um, Newcastle were the last club to effectively publish their accounts, and they're the last club to uh, announce refunds. Um, yeah, they, they don't really have much of a choice uh, in, in the matter because there is consumer protection law uh, and they failed to deliver 19 matches where people can attend. But at least they, they have got round to announcing it. I, I think in an ideal world, Mike Ashley would have put the sale through earlier uh, this year, a couple of months ago, and, and then left it to the new owners to have to deal with. But uh, as as the uh, as the owners and directors test issues are dragging on, and we were discussing that earlier last week, yeah. um, I, felt, I, th- I suspect the club felt that they couldn't continue to uh, to, to show, show a deaf ear to fans. Uh, you know, and, and many fans will say, you know, keep the money, or I'll put it towards next year's season ticket. And what one disappointing thing, uh, though, in respect of this, whilst they have given fans. Um, or will be giving fans, should I say, a refund for 2019-20, those fans who have taken up the early bird offers for 2021, and let's face it, we don't know whether matches are going to take place before a paying audience. It's highly unlikely when the season starts that's going to be the case. Um, that They've said, oh, we'll make a decision later. So 
um, you know, f- fans who've, who've, you know, stumped up money early for whatever reason. It could be that they get a discount, could be that they, they wanted to support the club. Um, their circumstances might have changed since then and they won't be given the opportunity of a refund um, for the foreseeable future. You know, we've talked on several occasions in the past couple of weeks, Kieran, about uh, fans donating their refund back to the club or back to an academy or or back to a foundation. But in an area like Newcastle, which has been severely hit by COVID and by austerity in the past, if I was a Newcastle fan, knowing that, that a, a takeover was imminent by basically the Saudi government, I'd be reluctant to, to donate my refund back to the club in those circumstances, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think given the the toxic relationship uh, between Mike Ashley and the fan base, um, whereas I think we've seen for the majority of the the smaller clubs, you know, when fans have been able to to afford to do so, where their circumstances have allowed them to do so, the, the, the majority have said, yeah, we'll either give the money to the club charity or to an NHS fund, or or, or back to the club itself, which has been fantastic, and it, and if they can't afford to due to personal circumstances, then, then nobody should be giving them any stick. But in, in the case of Ashley, I can't see many people wanting to give mu- money back to him, given that he's going to uh, be trousering £300 million from the sale of the club. Yeah, um, Scumfort fans don't have the option, though, because unfortunately Scumfort United have announced that they can't afford to offer season ticket refunds. Yeah, that- and this one this one seemed... Uh, this there's a few strange things in respect of Scumthorpe. Um They've they've said it's going to cost them a hundred thousand pounds. I think they've got four remaining uh, home fixtures. Um, they have said that you you can offset the the uh, the money due um, to your twenty twenty one season ticket, or the club can keep it and you pay the full amount for your twenty twenty one season ticket. Practically every other club has done the same. And also said, well, if you want to have a refund, we'll arrange one. Um, if you if you take a look at Scunthorpe, um, the, the the club's got debts of eleven million pounds, which it's run up to um, a company called Coolsink, called Coolsilk, which is uh, owned by the uh, the club owner. Um, Coolsilk is charging charge you know thick end of three hundred grand in interest um, last year, and and if if the club's genuinely got no money, then I'm still not convinced that that's in agreement with. Uh, uh, with with consumer protection law, but it really doesn't help. In, in exactly the same week um, as this takes place, the owner goes along and buys buys a racehorse for one hundred and sixty five grand. Oh, really? Now that's that's yeah, you know, that's that's what's called a tin ear, I think, in the business. Yes. Um, so you know, Scun- Scunthorpe as a club, the, the the owners have been very supportive over the last seven years. Um, it, it's not been run as a business. You know, the, the total income twenty four million, wages thirty four. So, uh, yeah, they've been spending far more in, in order to try to be successful, and it hasn't really paid off. They've dropped. Uh, yeah, they, they they had a few years in League One, but then dropped into League Two. Um, but that it just, I don't think it looks too clever. Um, you, you know, have have a have a little bit of common sense. Don't don't go buying. You know, trophy assets such as racehorses. If if you say you've got no money, and, and I appreciate they're separate businesses, but it, it just doesn't look too clever. Yeah, one day you and I will buy a racehorse together from the money we make from this pod. A, a tiny, tiny little racehorse <laughs> called the Price of Football. It's it still amazes me. We've been doing this for the best part of a year now, and it still amazes me when I hear you say a club's not been run as a business. But there you go. Um, 
finally, before we get on to questions, Macclesfield have been deducted points, as you predicted, but <laughs> not enough to relegate them. Uh, excuse the pun, but what's, what really, what is the point? In, in, so the points deduction is no sort of punishment at all then, really, is it? Well, it, it's not. I mean, uh, Macclesfield have, have failed to play the wage, the wages on time at least six times during the season. So you know, the, the players went on strike. Clearly, there's there's, there's a poor relationship uh, between the club owner and the players, and the club owner and uh, the EFL, and the club owner and the fans, because you know, the fans don't know what's happening from week to week. Our match is going to be fulfilled, and so on. Um, so it went to yet another EFL charge um they've already i think they had around about 11 points deducted um to date this season and if they'd had three points deducted they would have been relegated to the national league yeah but instead it was a two-point deduction with a four-point suspended sentence and a twenty thousand pound fine yeah um and and it and it just makes you you wonder how on earth do they come up with these numbers? I, I don't know whether they've been to the FA and have, and have borrowed the jar, which which you put the balls in for the <laughs> for, for for the FA Cup draw, and say, you know, it's just a random random yeah. points deduction generator. Uh, uh, Stevenage fans are completely upset, as you can understand. Yeah, um, yeah. Macclesfield fans are relieved, as you can you can perfectly understand. But how how these decisions are being made there there's no consistency there seems to be no logic um and, and nicola palios who's one of the um one of the owners at 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 tranmere you know she she tweeted on friday night when this came through that the clubs themselves don't know what's going to happen because there seems to be no set tariff nobody knows in advance uh, and it just seems to be very very random yeah, well, in effect, all they've been given is a twenty thousand pound fine because the points deduction has no relevance at all. It's not. It's. It, I, I, I imagined that they would be saying, right, you'll start next season on minus four points or whatever it was, and I, I suspect we haven't heard the last of this because the noises coming out of Stevenage were very much that they expected Macclesfield to be deducted enough points to keep Stevenage safe. So. Uh, we probably need to get that lawyer we're having on the show next week on quite quickly before Stevenage retained his services. But again, I think we'll be hearing more, from, certainly from Macclesfield, over the course of the summer. Anyway, on to questions, because it is Monday. It is our questions pod, and we have got some very interesting questions today. Uh, the first is from Philip Whitaker. You'll like this, Kieran. Um, I say that as though you don't already know what the first question is, because <laughs> you you like some time to research, whereas I like enough time to roll out of bed and pick, pick <laughs> open up the website, uh, website the email. Uh, Philip Whitaker, this is a proper uh, – sorry, it's Sunday, and I'm, I, I celebrated Palace winning last night. Um, so, Philip Whitaker, of course you – well, of course you did, but you and I celebrate in very different ways. Uh, how is the Baroness this morning? Is she okay? Yeah, she made me some Marmite and cheese bread. Which is absolutely brilliant, absolutely amazing stuff. Uh-huh. So yeah, I'm. I, I that's that's how I rock, Crevin. You know. Yeah. Did you call me Previn then? Previn. Yes. I'll grade you up. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one for the kids. Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's the difference between in our in our lifestyles is that if marmite and cheese between two slices of bread, I will just about give you. But bread made of marmite and cheese. Uh, that'll go nicely with a pheasant, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds lovely. Marmite peanut butter is uh, gorgeous. Anyway, uh, 
Perhaps if we mention that again, they'll send us some free uh, jars. Philip Whitaker's question. It's a proper accounting question. What impact, says Philip Whitaker, what impact will expanding the season have on end-of-year accounts? Will clubs stick to their normal reporting cycle? And will it make future comparisons impossible? Um, if, if I answer the, the second question first, ma- making the figures comparable um, his, over on a historic basis, yeah, they, they, they won't be. Um, it's uh, because clubs will have been hit so significantly from the the impact of coronavirus in terms of broadcasting rebates and and rebates on tickets. So, yeah, everybody's going to take a hit this year. Um, I, I don't think clubs will change their year end because, as, as we've already mentioned, financial fair play is going to be spread over two seasons until effectively the end of June twenty one. So therefore, it doesn't really impact upon clubs because one one of the key issues in terms of producing your accounts is for is for FFP submission. Okay, right. Um, we got a question from a regular contributor, a Millwall fan, Dave Baccarini, uh, who we have previously said sounds like he probably knows your family from Bermondsey. Um, this is an interesting question though, because we we often talk about parachute payments. And Dave's question, firstly, is how were the values of parachute payments decided in the first place? And by what amount could they be reduced to minimise a disadvantage to clubs like Millwall, but still provide a safety blanket for relegated clubs from the Premier League? Well, um, in terms of the, the first element of the question, parachute payments are calculated as a percentage of the money which is which is given out by the Premier League um, on an equal distribution basis, and, and I think we've discussed this before. There's there's three or four pots of money as yeah. far as the Premier League is concerned. Half the money is at, is allocated evenly between clubs. Um, a quarter is split between um, the, the positions of the clubs. So you get it's effectively worked out as about two and a half million pounds per each place you go up the table and, and the third pot is, uh, is is determined by how often you're on TV um, so the, the first pot is the one which is the critical one and if if you're if it's your first year um, in the championship you get 55% of the equal distribution that drops to 45% in year 2 and 20% in year 3 so it's it's, it's all it's all down to our favorites you know algorithms etc yeah. um and and it's uh, it's it's easy to calculate in advance to a certain extent um so the, the premier league having to give a rebate to the, the broadcasters this year will have an impact upon those clubs who are in receipt of parachute payments next year. But I think more importantly, it will have uh, an impact on EFL clubs in Leagues 1 and 2 and the Championship in what are referred to as solidarity payments because those are also linked to the equal distribution pot. Oh, that's interesting. Um just, just so I can get this straight, you're not implying that the three clubs that get relegated from the Premier League this season will all get the same parachute payment, though. Will they? Or yeah, yeah, they'll all get fifty five percent of what will be given to all of the Premier League clubs right, in okay. terms of the amount that's being split evenly. Right. So, of all seasons, this is not a brilliant one to get relegated, is it? Yeah, it's 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 going to be an absolute nightmare if you go down this year um, because. The, the championship's not going to have revenue coming in next season from uh, from fans, certainly for the first few months in all probability, and you're getting lower parachute payments, but not necessarily being able to cut your wages as quickly as you would like. Yeah. Okay, our next question comes from Guy Fraser. Uh, 
And this is an interesting one as well. They're all interesting questions, but this is something that hadn't occurred to me. Guy wonders whether part of the Premier League team's desire not to play at neutral grounds was down to advertising sponsorship. And he, he asked this for two reasons. Would they have had to repay advertising contracts if matches weren't held at their own ground? And with little other sport going on, could they actually bump up the prices for the rest of the season? Uh, I think we should point out, Guy, that not every club uh, didn't want to play at neutral grounds. It tended to be the, the bottom six, uh, clubs like Brighton, uh, for example. Uh, um, but for the most part, several clubs were very, very keen to maintain home advantage, which, of course, we all assume was for playing reasons. But Guy is wondering whether there were other reasons for that as well, Kieran. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, it's it's one which has been looked at. If if you take a look at uh, the Premier League, were initially considering playing in eight, nine, ten uh, grounds around the country. Um, but if you think about it, some grounds have naming rights. So yeah, we've got the Etihad, the Emirates, the Vitality, the Amex, and so on. So so those companies have paid for the naming rights of their stadium, and, and there could have been winners or losers there because if. Uh, if if the Emirates had been chosen for the neutral venues, then then more matches would have taken place there. So therefore, the Emirates would have been happy. If the if uh, yeah. if that stadium had not been chosen, they would have been unhappy and therefore might ask for some money back. In in terms of general adverts, um, most adverts these days, as you've probably seen, and this is actually a Premier League rule, um, perimeter advertising it tends to be um, LED based. Yeah. And it's actually quite easy to to re, re, recalibrate those. So, if uh, if Liverpool had been playing um, at Burnley uh, for their neutral fixture, then Liverpool could still have have sold that that advertising themselves. Um, so that shouldn't have been a problem. However, what you would lose out is many, many times if you take a look at Stadia, um, you know the seats themselves are in. The, you know, there's a logo of a sponsor. Uh, and there's other adverts placed around which which aren't the which aren't around the perimeter of the ground which which would have necessitated um some rebates i don't think they would have been huge though uh, right. because the the main money my, my understanding is is you're on around about 10 to 12 times as much for perimeter advertising um you know there's the stuff with the you know advertising ra- random betting sites and insurance companies and so on than for the static uh, boards which tend to come from you know sort of more local businesses now, something just occurred to me Kieran because as you say watching every Premier League game this weekend you see a wide array of, of products being advertised on the LED uh, not all of them in English um, and many of them for companies that it's hard to decipher what actually they are offering but will a club like Bournemouth yesterday for example if you've got 10 different companies displaying adverts during the 90 minutes Will Bournemouth have done 10 different deals with those companies? Or will, or will they go through one sort of central agent who sells the advertising space on their behalf? Well, I think there's, there's, there's a few things here. Um, the, the Premier League does agree some deals um, effectively on behalf of the league as a whole. Right. So, therefore, you will see some adverts. I think one of them is from a, from a Turkish hair replacement yeah. clinic, um, which... which and, and I think that's negotiated centrally. And what happens is that you pay for 30-second slots. 
Right. So the Premier League will have negotiated some of those on behalf of the whole of the Premier League. And then it is down as, as a rule for the clubs, the club's commercial directors. And, and I've been trying to persuade one or two commercial directors to come on uh, onto the show to explain how it operates. Um, and we're, we're making slow progress. Um, so hopefully we'll have some news on that soon. Do you know what? In my experience, commercial directors in any organisation are the ones who are more likely to stay stormed than anybody else. They're, um, they're, they're like oysters. You can't get anything out of commercial people. Um, on the subject of shirt sponsorship, uh, or sorry, advertising and sponsorship in general, uh, I, I missed the days. Palace's first sponsor were a local pet shop, essentially. Uh, and I missed days like that. But this question is from Will Grieve, uh, who I assume is a Leighton Orient fan, because Will Grieve has said that with Leighton Orient announcing that Harry Kane uh, is taking up their shirt sponsorship, uh, mainly to display charities on the front of the shirts. How can clubs generate income, says Will, if they have charities on the front of the shirt, like UNICEF, for example, at Barcelona? Or, or do clubs who have charities on their shirt not necessarily need income from shirt sponsorship? Well, I think it's 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 a good good question from from Will. Um, but by the sounds of it, Harry Kane is effectively taking on the cost that Leighton Orient would normally charge to a shirt sponsor, which which is a fantastic gesture from him. You know, yeah. he, he acknowledges the the place that that club has had in in the development of his career. Um, but in terms of charities, quite often the club the club owner or or the club board will make a decision that um, we want to be associated with something different. Um, under Premier League rules, I think you're allowed one or two games a season where the traditional sponsor can forego um, what's on the front of the shirt and that can be replaced by a charity. So it, it is embedded into Premier League contracts, um, but it, it will it will cost clubs if, if they decide to go with a with a charity that you referred to Barcelona. Barcelona were paying um, UNICEF one point five million pounds a year for the right to have UNICEF on on the front of their their shirts. Um, you know that that was around about you know twenty ten twenty eleven ish I think, which was fantastic. You know I think it was a really classy act at the time. Yeah. Um, but since then, the what other sponsors are prepared to pay for the for the big clubs um, it is so much that um, relatively few clubs can these days afford to turn it down. Yeah, yeah, it's noticeable that Man City had one. I think I think one of their own charities, Citizens, uh, for their game on Wednesday, didn't they? We'll have more from Barcelona later. Uh, a slightly less positive story. Uh, Sean Ryan is one of our many American listeners. Sean's in San Francisco. Hello, Sean. I hope you're safe and well. Um, it's a short question, but it's again, it's an interesting one. Sean wants to know why there are so few player exchanges in football compared to American sport. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, um, I think there's, there's a number of issues here. First of all, if you think about transfers 
um, between players uh, here in, in, in England. We're recruiting from the Premier League is recruiting from the EFL. The Premier League is recruiting from Scotland, Spain, Bulgaria, Italy. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the pool of players is huge. Yeah. So there has to be some form of trading mechanism. The NFL is a single company which 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 sends out franchises, and r- rather than player giving uh, clubs compensation for developing players, which effectively a transfer fee is to a certain extent. Um, remember, you've got the draft system in the NFL and the NBA, uh, and that means that the cost of developing players is actually being borne by by colleges. And uh, U.S. college sport and the scandal of U.S. college sport is something which, which I'm, I've always been amazed that has got so little interest because uh, th- these kids uh, don't get paid um, when they're at college. Um, and quite often they get injured, and you know it's, it's quite brutal sports that they're playing in. Yeah. Um, so, so those those are the contributory factors. Um, also, if you look at um, if you look at football, many clubs, and I think I referred to this earlier in, in the pod, have what we refer to as a development model. So that you know the likes of Brentford, where they try to talent spot, develop a player for a couple of years, sell on a profit. Um, that's because on a day to day basis they're losing money. In, in in American sports, everybody is making money because right. of the the salary caps that they've got, because of the centralization of income, and, and because income is being centralized, um, everybody's getting the same amount. So therefore, you don't need to pay the transfer fees. Now, that, that's a very good answer. It's a very clear answer. But just one point: American college sport, whether it's uh, football, basketball, whatever. Is huge. I mean, they get huge crowds. So when you say those kids don't get paid, do you mean they don't get paid or, inverted commas, they don't get paid? No, no, they, they do not. They don't get a bean. Uh, you know, they might get a scholarship. Right. Um, and, and, you know, American universities are are huge. I mean, I, I, did some, I did some teaching at Stanford probably about 15 years ago, and I went to look at their their facilities, and they were just stunning. You know, they, they were better than... 70 of the the stadia that you would see here in the UK for, for, for professional football absolutely amazing um but it is it, it is simply just a, a a production line um and and then of course that the draft system does sort of equalize the talent between clubs um but you no know, that they, they are they are not and I think it's one of the things that the NFL monitors very carefully um to make sure that there are no abuses I mean some of the scholarships might be quite generous. Um, from the universities themselves because um, they make so much money from college sports because you've got you know 30,000 people turning up. They've got very lucrative TV deals. And unlike football here in the UK, where so much of the money instantly disappears in wages, that just simply goes straight into university coffers. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I mentioned a Barcelona question, and it comes from Dara Martin. Uh it's something we have sort of touched on peripherally, uh, which is I'm quite proud I managed to pronounce that with the hangover I've got. But Dara Martin's uh, question is, last year Barcelona signed 16-year-old Louis Barry from West Brom. There was quite a lot of publicity about it. They signed him for £235,000, but they didn't pay the money. Then Louis Barry signed for Villa. Now, Dara's question is a simple one. How is that possible uh, if... You know, how can Barcelona move him on without actually paying for him? And who gets the money for that Villa signing? And basically, are Barca taking the piss out of West Brom? Um, 
Well, Barcelona do appear to be in breach of financial fair play. Whilst we tend to think of financial fair play as all about wage caps and break-even models and so on, um, if if you go into the small print of the UEFA um, FFP regulations, and I, and I wouldn't recommend that with a hangover, um, I then... Um, <laughs> I'm not doing it full stop, Kieran. Hangover or no hangover. <laughs> that's, that's your job. My job is reading questions out loud, basically. Your job is small print. Come on now. <laughs> Um, but an, another element is um, what's referred to as the football payables rule, uh, and you have to settle your football debts. So I, th- I think West Bromwich Albion will be pursuing Barcelona uh, via FIFA uh, or via UEFA for the non-payment for, for Louis Barry. So they sold him for 235 grand. Um, I, I went onto the Barcelona website, and it, it, one of the great things about the, these big clubs is that they do p- publish them, of course, in, in multiple languages. Yeah. They, they sold Louis Barry, I think, for 1.05 million euros. Um, so clearly they've, they've done very well in the six months that the, the, the young man's been at the club. Um, they would have to give um, West Brom a proportion of that in, in what's known as a, a development fee. Because if you sign a player who is young and you sell him on, then the, the club who had him as a youth player is entitled to a share of that, that transfer fee. So. West Brom should be getting not just the two hundred and thirty-five grand, but also a proportion of the, the, the just over the one million euros that Barcelona have from the sale of Barry to Villa. That's a big should, isn't it? By the sound of it, uh, yes. I, you can't imagine that it would be high on Barcelona's priorities, which is a shame. Uh, now, Fraser Lloyd Davis is a Plymouth Argyle fan, so I'm sure he'll be delighted to hear me be the millionth person to say they are a huge club who should be in the Premier League with that catchment area. That's uh, uh, all everybody says about Plymouth. A massive club. Um, uh, I have a soft spot for Plymouth Argyle, but mainly because my first proper girlfriend was at college in Plymouth. Uh, obviously, I didn't spend Saturday afternoons going to see Plymouth play, but I love the city. Um, Fraser's question. Is there a way Plymouth Argyle could realistically get to the championship, if not further, without ditching their new approach to financial sustainability or will we inevitably have to splash out to move on up the pyramid? Um, so the first question, before you answer that second question, is what is their new approach to financial s- sustainability? Well, um, Plymouth have got an, uh, an owner called Simon Hallett, and uh, he, he's, a, he's a fan of the pod as well. He's, he has tempted us and so on. Um, so it's always nice to get to get things like that. Um, he, he has invested in the club. Um, and he said his his aim is to is to to make it better at generating income. So right. money's being put into the infrastructure, but I also think he, he's trying to uh, increase the the range of facilities um, through which the club can generate money, with a view to making it uh, effectively self financing. Um, can you get up to the uh, championship on a break even model? Well, well, Plymouth lost. £1.4 million in the last six months of their account. So, you know, they, they show the struggles involved. But if you take a look at the likes of Burton, Shrewsbury and Rotherham, um, you know, there are clubs who do operate a really tight budget um, and, and their focus is on trying to get young managers, um, trying to get development through through the academy and so on. And they will manage to get up to the 
the championship or Shrewsbury are being fairly close to it. Um, and, and certainly when I've spoken to, to chief executives at clubs, a lot of them have said sort of the Shrewsbury and Burton model. They see them as sort of the litmus test. You know, that's something we need to follow if, if we need to cut our losses. So it, it can be done. But it's really tough because if you take a look at Burton and Rotherham, every time they've gone up, they've tended to last you know, one or two seasons um, in the championship in recent years. Um, but you know, good good luck to them for taking such an approach. Um, it, it is achievable, but it's it's a tough task. Now, on a on a purely cynical money point of view, you and I, Kieran, support teams that have been in the same division as Plymouth back in the day. And they take huge numbers of fans to away games. Cause, I mean, considering the distance, it's incredible how many fans they take to away games. My mate Bristol Mark is a Plymouth season ticket holder, uh, and it always makes me laugh that his nickname's Bristol Mark and he's a Plymouth fan. But, again, he goes home and away, and they still take huge numbers. I mean, this is a club. It, it, I, I'm amazed that somebody hasn't – a billionaire hasn't – because this is a club that would get 35,000 fans in the Premier League. I mean, this is a club that could be the size of, of Leeds United it, only in Devon, couldn't it, really? So it seems that there is money to be made for Plymouth. So it's 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 even more admirable that a, a club like Plymouth aren't sort of selling the farm and risking all on, on getting into the Championship the Premier League, isn't it? Very much so. And, you know, I think we, it's good to have new owners coming in. And and it's the first thing that they say quite often is, well, I'm going to splash this money. Or they're trying to get some um, acceptance and affectation from fans. Um, but here, Simon Hallett has come in and and the fans have bought into this. You know, that they like the idea of what, what he's trying to do in terms of developing the ground. Um, and they can see the longer term benefits and sometimes it's it's better to build a club from foundations rather than just splashing the cash on on new transfers. Yeah, I agree. Um, if Simon Hallett is listening, he might be able to shed light on this mystery as well because uh, there are a lot of Plymouth fans who will, who will tell you that the name romantically comes from the fact that the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders were, for some reason, based in Devon during the Victorian times. I think it's more to do with the fact there's a massive pub called the Argyle Arms right in the centre of Plymouth. But maybe maybe Simon could shed some light on that for us. Um, uh, you've already partly answered this next question. This next question comes from Amber Holloway. Hello, Amber. Uh, Amber says, it seems easy to collect financial data on English clubs because uh, you just go to a company's house. But where can you find financial data for clubs in other major European leagues? And is it easy to understand or translate? So you've told us that Barcelona's uh, accounts are readily available and in English as well. Is that the same for most major European clubs? Um, I, th- I think for major clubs, yeah, quite often that is the case. Um, certainly I've looked at the likes of Dortmund and Real and so on. Um, uh, PSG, they, they give you what they want you to see. Uh, in English, so you have to delve a bit further. Um, th- this is an area where I do think uh, the-, the UK leads as far as Europe is concerned, uh, because all clubs have to submit to Companies House, and that is freely available. And it, and it used to cost money every time um, you-, you took you took a set of accounts from Companies House, but I think they, they changed that in around about 2005. And, and for me, it's one of the biggest steps forwards in terms of uh, analysis because it allows me to to monitor all 92 in England and all 44 in, in Scotland. Was it 42? Um, so can we, can we get it right before we – because it's me that gets the tweets. 
Yeah, also, forty something. Yeah, so that would be fine. Yeah, yeah. I imagine you've got some kind of season ticket at Company's House, haven't you? I imagine. I, I, I guess in a pleasingly fifties way, there's a, a commissioner who tips his hat as you come in. And goes, <laughs> I'm, I'm on first name terms. I was going to say, yeah, yes. morning, yeah, morning, Kieran. All right, who is it today? Bournemouth. Okay, I'll get them for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's not as good. It's not as transparent in Europe. We've got we've got different companies. Sorry, different countries with different legislation. And um, the, the, it, it's far more spotty. Um, some clubs will, of course, publish in their in their native language, um, and, and this is where because because I'm a Brit and my language skills um, aren't good. I mean, I, I did Latin at school, so not there's not many clubs publishing in that, which is a shame. Yeah, but as we've learned, you've got enough Russian to get by. Well, well, I only knew, knew about three words, but that was all I needed. Um, <laughs> three very important words, Kieran. That's fine. Very, yeah. Um, so, so certainly, when, when I'm looking for European uh, data, I, I always go to the Swiss Rambo on Twitter because uh, uh, he he does he does speak uh, at least four languages uh, fluently. He, he's very much a cunning linguist, and um, he's uh, he, he's the man that, that does all the hard work. Uh, and I and I just go and note it down and add it to my spreadsheet. I, I knew that was I knew that was coming. And also, I, I know I know that guy listens to the pod, uh, our producer. And I, I could just hear a slight cough in the background when you recommended another football finance podcast. Uh, to, I know he doesn't do podcasts. I know he, he just tweets. tweets. He, he just tweets. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's so there's no UEFA regulations then that, that says that clubs have to make their accounts transparent. No, no, because because oh. UEFA. Um, yeah, I think this is one of the things that the football authorities should be doing, uh, and certainly I've I've been sniping at the EFL, which is why they hate me, um, and the FA for for failing to increase transparency um, in the game in this regard. But there's, there seems to be no desire for this to be the case from the football authorities themselves. Yeah, the EFL don't hate you, Kieran. Some of the clubs in it do, but um, it's it's a sign. It's a sign of. Uh, uh, respect, isn't it? Hate is what, how I like to think of it. <laughs> it's in the way well, that I, yeah, in a way that I really respect Brighton. You know that sort of. That, that's right. Well, look, looking at the comments from Arsenal fans about Neil Mope um, last night on on social media, they, they've clearly got a lot of respect for him. Yeah, do you know what? That was, that was the first time watching that game yesterday where I, I genuinely wondered what the outcome would have been if there had been a, if fans because it would have been right in front of the Arsenal fans and. I wonder if the referee would have reacted differently. Uh, anyway, that's for a different pod because it's got nothing to do with football finance. Uh, now, our final question, and again, it's it's quite a big one, but it's an interesting one. It comes from Gypster. Uh, I'll, if I've pronounced that wrong, I apologise, uh, but it's just G-Y-P-S-T-E-R. Uh, I thought it was Ginster initially, obviously, so I was very pleased to be getting a question from a Cornish pasty magnet, but it's Gypster. Um and Gypster's talk about it. it's likely, says uh, Gypster. I'm, he's, I'm not as optimistic as he is, but it's likely in the coming months that the government report will give a green light to safe standing being at least considered across the Premier League and the, the Championship. Uh, and his question is, as a lead season ticket holder, what are the financial implications for individual clubs and also for individual fans where fans around them are already standing up anyway, to be perfectly honest. And he's talking about not just replacing seats, but also stewarding first aid costs, etc. Well, um, you know, what we have at present is unsafe standing. Yes. You know, I, I, I go, you and I both go to matches. Yeah. Whenever I go to an away game, I've, I've not sat down at an away game yeah. 
for, for God knows how many years, um, d- despite you know the, the the half-hearted attempts of stewards who have got a nightmare job with regards to this. Yeah. Um, under the Taylor report, of course, we have all seed to stadia in England. That doesn't apply to Scotland. So what, what we are seeing is Celtic introduced what's referred to as safe standing or railed standing. Yeah. Um, and sort of looking at the finances of this, a, a lot will depend upon the, the safety certificate, um, which is granted to the club, because um, how many people standing are you going to get for each seat? Um, looking at the the different models, it's somewhere between one and two. So if you take a club such as Hanover, they they replaced 3,000 seats with 5,700 standing uh, area. So clearly they they will generate more money um, in that regard. The the cost to stand is cheaper, but the overall revenue is actually higher. So so that if that is the case, that that would be more than the cost of first aid facilities, stewarding and so on. And I think the only the only extra stewarding cost should be in theory is that you have one steward per X number of fans. So if you increase the capacity of stadia as a result of introducing uh, rail seating, then there would be increased stewarding costs. But these would be insignificant compared to the extra revenue that clubs would generate unless unless there are uh, it's it's a, it's a one for one exchange and the the safety advisory people say we want more stewards as a uh, as an as a an initial approach um i know that manchester united um they're trying to get safe standing yeah. if you have you been to the new spurs stadium i have yeah first in the um, away end well yeah that's that's geared night. for rail seating yeah. um, and that seems to be quite good you know a new stadium is effectively being future proofed um so I think actually that there is the potential to uh, make money out of standing um, if you are getting you know 1.4 plus uh, people standing for every one seat that's being foregone. Yeah, it, it's clear, Kieran, when you go to away games in the Premier League that a lot of clubs, and I think Palace are one of them, have kind of decided to turn a blind eye to standing in certain areas where you know traditionally. The more robust fans go. I think. I think as long as people don't take the piss, clubs are happy to let that let that happen. And as you say, away games, I think stewards more or less give up. I mean, if you've got three thousand Brighton fans, Palace fans at Watford, and they're all standing up, you, you can make as many announcements as you like over the PA. They're not. They're not going to sit down. But and I know there are a lot of people who say that the advent of all seater stadiums was when working class fans started to get priced out of the game. So clubs will have to charge less if you're standing, won't they? But how much less do you think clubs would would charge? I mean, if you're paying £30 for a seat at Sellers Park, how much do you think uh, Steve Parrish would want to charge to stand at Sellers Park? I, I don't think clubs would be expecting to, to pay less. When, when, really? I, when I go to a gig... Yeah, I, I I pay the same whether I'm standing or sitting. In fact, yeah, I'm, I, I'd, I'd, I'm, that doesn't tend to bother me. Right. So, what, as as a football fan, the the quality of the seats is so crap that fair you're not actually yeah, getting point. any benefit, or you're getting yeah. a, a wee bit of extra space. Uh, but even so, you know, when, when I've been to Old Trafford as an away fan, you're you're absolutely sardined into the seats, and and you're still paying top dollar. So if there is a discount, I think it will be a nominal one. Um, and therefore, clubs potentially could make more money. 
um, from this. If if you increase the, the number of people standing by forty percent and you cut the costs by ten, then you know the clubs could be a bit of in benefit. Yeah, I was I was I was I was trying to think of examples where you would not be happy to pay as much. To, to, like, the only thing I could come up with is the Globe Theatre, which I go to a lot, and of course I always pay to sit down. I wouldn't I wouldn't be happy to to pay the same money to sit down at the Globe as I would pay to stand, but that's blowing my credentials as a down-to-earth working-class football fan. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I, I, my guess is, Kieran, that you probably think the same way as I do, that safe standing should come back. I can understand why Liverpool would be one of the clubs that are reluctant to to, to commit to it. Of course, we, w- we would all understand that. But I think for a lot of fans, a safe standing area would be a, a welcome return, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, and and I think uh, the spirit of Shankly, which is one of the the Liverpool fan groups, you know, that they've they 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 asked their members, and overwhelmingly, I think they would welcome safe standing. You know, what happened at Hillsborough that we should never forget was down to the incompetence of the people organising that fixture and policing that fixture and stewarding that fixture. It wasn't down to having terraces per se. If, if that if there hadn't been cages in those well, days, well, yeah, if, yeah. if football fans had been treated as people instead of you know herded animals, then you know, th- that that would have helped as well. Yeah, and if uh, people like Lord Justice Popperwell had taken the opportunity after the Bradford fire uh, report to remove fences, as was recommended by safety experts, that Hillsborough wouldn't have happened. You're absolutely right. Uh, we should, you, And we should never forget that. You're absolutely right. Um, that was the last question from Gypster. As ever, they've been interesting questions, and I, I really enjoy the questions. But I love the, the news pod, Kieran. Of course I do. Any half hour I get to spend in your company, albeit remotely, is a, is a pleasure, Kieran. Uh, if you have, I don't know why you're laughing. I was genuinely trying to be sincere there, but in that middle-aged bloke way, you just go, "Oh, well, I'll have to laugh at this." <laughs> uh, it's yeah, as it's, it's like yeah. I, I sent a nice message to my friend Roy last week who asked us a question, and all my other mates just accused me of being uh, soft for saying nice things about somebody we love. It's a terrible male thing to do. Um, if you have questions for us, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. Uh, we will be back on Thursday after some more football games. It's brilliant to have it back. And it'd be lovely to have you back too. So, Kieran, have a good uh, next couple of days and I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Stay safe, boys and girls. Thank you. You didn't say that last time. A lot of people commented on it. They said, <laughs> they said, why does he not want us to stay safe this weekend? It's your catchphrase. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. The price of football. The price of football.